Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Hey, come on in and have a seat if you would, please. Hope you enjoy that mingle time. Come on back in. All right. Hey, my name is Ryan Anderson. I'm on the teaching team here. You, uh, hey guys. Um, you might know me, maybe we've met. If not, I would love to meet you. Maybe you know my wife, Lauren. We have three boys running around. Um, but it is my pleasure to be up here this morning. And so if you would, I would love to just start by praying. Jesus, thank you again for that time of worship. Thanks for the freedom that we have to do that. Um, I pray that you would speak through me today. Uh, God, just move me out of the way so that we walk out of this room looking more like you than we did when we walked in. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Uh, we praise you for the way that you are at work within us. I pray that you would let your spirit move in this place today. Amen. <clears throat> um, so a relatively common conversation that happens at my house is I will be eating a healthy breakfast of Pop-Tarts and they're strawberry, they're fruity. Um, just kidding, usually they're brown sugar, cinnamon, but the best kind of Pop-Tart. And I'll be having my breakfast and Lauren will be like, that's not breakfast. You need to eat a full breakfast. And I say, first of all, it is breakfast. It's before 8 a.m. And if I eat before 8 a.m., it's breakfast. Um, she's like, no, you need a full meal. And I say, this is a full meal. I've been eating Pop-Tarts as a full meal for 20 years. I think I would know if Pop-Tarts are a full meal. Um, and also, it's two Pop-Tarts. It's not just one Pop-Tart. I've been eating two Pop-Tarts. And she's like, you know, just get something else to eat. And so I go get a toaster strudel or something, and I finish my breakfast, and I know that a middle-aged man like myself, and I don't know what middle age is, but I, I think I'm there, um, I know that eating Pop-Tarts for breakfast is not the best or healthiest thing, um, but I didn't just arrive here. This has been an accumulation of 20 years worth of unhealthy eating habits, partially due to me living like 100 yards from a McDonald's in college, and so slow fade from what I think was relatively healthy eating at one point in my life to uh, earlier this week, I just as an afternoon snack dipped cookies in Funfetti icing and had that as a snack twice, two different days this week. And so slowly fading away from anything that was any semblance of healthy eating and that's kind of what we're talking about now in our series called Drift. And um, it's just slowly, slowly, slowly drifting away from Jesus, like I did healthy eating. And 
being married to Lauren has been great. It's kind of brought me back on track, but I still, still drift. Uh, and this series stems from Hebrews 2, or Hebrews chapter 2, where it says, this is why it is so crucial that we all that we be all the more engaged and attentive to the truths that we have heard so that we do not drift off course. Again, this is why it is so crucial that we be all the more engaged and attentive to the truths that we have heard so that we do not drift off course. Do not drift off course. And so a few quick thoughts on this passage. First of all, the first words of the chapter are this is why. Um, And it's easy to overlook those words, this is why, but we need to ask, what is why? Um, There are some versions of this passage that start off by saying, therefore, and I have an old pastor who, every time there was a therefore, he would say, whenever you see a therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And it's super cheesy, and I can't believe I just said it, but it has helped me know that when I see a therefore... I need to go back, and I see. And so we go back, and we see what chapter 1 says of Hebrews. And what it is, is essentially an entire chapter simply stating who Jesus is. It is declaring and celebrating the greatness of Jesus. And it says, chapter 1 says that God the Father has spoken to us by his Son. And then it goes on to say that his Son, Jesus, is the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is greater than all angels. He is the creator, the sustainer, the owner, the ruler, the redeemer of our world. It says all that. And then chapter 2, you turn to chapter 2 and it says, Therefore, or this is why, it is so crucial that we be all the more engaged and attentive to the truths that we have heard so that we do not drift off course. Because Jesus is the creator and the sustainer and the owner and the redeemer and the ruler, it's important not to drift from him. And that makes sense. Jesus is a big deal. So let's stay close to him. Don't drift. And it seems easy enough, but it's really not. And Phil, you did a great job first week of talking about people who drifted. The first four kings of Israel, they drifted. Uh, Adam and Eve drifted, and we drift. And we drift from Jesus because of our sinful nature. And when we drift, we drift away from God. No one ever drifts towards God. When you're on idle mode, you don't ever drift towards God. Um, I have three boys at home, and so I spend about six hours a day picking up Legos, and I spend the other six or so hours a day that I'm not sleeping changing batteries and toys. And Foster, his favorite hobby, he's our three-year-old, his favorite hobby is to go into my drawer and grab my nice flashlight and then just go hide it. And he doesn't really play with it. He just picks it up, turns it on, takes it somewhere else, and leaves it. And so then eventually I find it, and when I do, the light is on, uh, but it's a little dimmer than the last time I had it, a little dimmer than the last time I had turned it on, because its batteries are dying, and it's just not as bright as the last time, and it's always kind of slowly fading every time I use that thing. Um, and it's always a little darker than it was before. I've never picked it up, and it's, oh, it's really bright again. And when a flashlight is left on and the batteries fade, it gets darker and not lighter. And we have that same tendency. 
we drift towards the dark, not towards the light, for whatever reason, because of our sin. So if you are coasting in your relationship with Jesus right now, you're drifting towards the dark. You're not drifting towards Jesus. You're drifting away from him. And uh, James 1, 14 through 16 says it well. It says, instead, it is each person's own desires and thoughts that drag them into evil and lure them away from into darkness. Evil desires give birth to evil actions, and when sin is fully mature, it can murder you. So, my friends, don't be fooled by your own desires. And this passage, I think, shows the pathway of drifting really well. Uh, We see the damage that drifting can cause. It says, evil desires, step one, we'll call it, give birth to evil actions. Step two, And evil desires themselves alone aren't that big of a deal. We all have evil desires in us. But when those evil desires give birth to evil actions, step one leads to step two. And we actually begin to act on the evil desires of our heart. And then those evil actions begin to grow, and eventually they become sin that is fully mature, as it says. And that's step three. And the passage the passage, the scripture says, when sin is fully mature, it can murder you. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is always death. And so, friends, as it says, don't be fooled by your own desires. They will drag you into evil and lure you away into the darkness. And if we're not careful, step one can lead to step two, which leads to step three, which leads to death. And in Romans, uh, Paul writes a letter to the Roman church, and in chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, we see him addressing their drifting, and at least what I see as I read that is Paul addressing their drifting of the Roman church. And I want to spend the rest of our time here in uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32, because I think we can learn a lot by what Paul has to say. And I'm going to, it's kind of long, I'm going to read through it once and we'll just see what sticks out. Um, So it's Romans 1, 18 through 32. It says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power and divine divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds, and animals, and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. 
and the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So, let me first say that's a lot, right? That's a big drift. They went from early in that passage, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them, to like 12 straight verses of things that God's justice requires them to die for. And before we go on, I just want to address this. Some use this passage to say that this is Paul writing about homosexuality, which he does write about that. But if you go that route, I think you're missing the mark. This is not Paul singling out homosexuality as a sin. This is Paul letting every single one of us know that every single one of us are in the same boat. And that same boat is a sinking ship called sin. We all have a tendency toward evil. We all have a tendency toward the wicked desires of our flesh. And so don't use this passage as a weapon to throw at people who struggle with a particular sin or a certain sin. Because if you read it right, it's about you. And it's about me. If we look at the list again, wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip, disobeying parents, I could raise my hand to quite a few of those. And so what Paul is saying is from the very beginning, God has been showing us the right path. And from the very beginning, we have been choosing the wrong path. And this, 14 verses, these 14 verses is what that choosing the wrong path is producing in our world. There's always been a drift. We say we follow God, but we don't. And so the question that I want us to look at is this. If we don't want to drift from Jesus, how do we recognize when we are drifting from Jesus? And there's a lot of ways that we can recognize that we're drifting from Jesus. A friend could come up to you and be like, hey, you're drifting from Jesus. And that's a pretty good uh, way to know if you're drifting. Um, But I want to, and there's a lot more, but I want to look at this passage specifically and see what we can learn from Paul as he writes to these drifting Romans um, in, in this passage alone. So the first one. I see there's five of them. I'm usually not a, like, five easy steps guy, and that's not what this is, but there just happens to be five. Uh, so the first one I see is in verse 18. It says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So the first one, are you suppressing truth? Are there things in your life that you know are true, 
but you're keeping hidden. And it could be a lot of things. You could be hiding something from your spouse, or you could be hiding something from your friends. You could be hiding something from your job or your boss, or you could be hiding something from yourself. Um, But it is way too easy for us to convince ourselves that the sin in our life is not a big deal. I remember when I was a kid, um, I would climb way up high in trees, like way higher than is smart to climb up into a tree. I would be above our roof line, um, and I would also just climb on our roof sometimes. We had a, a separated garage, and I would climb up on the roof of the garage just to jump down off of it. And I would climb up there and just jump off a roof that was probably 8, 10, 12 feet high. The other day, I jumped off like our counter. I had to kill a bug, and I got up on the counter, and I jumped down, and both my knees just exploded. <laughs> ACL, MCL, PCL, just torn to shreds. And it's a miracle I'm walking today. But when I was a kid in those trees, I had no fear. I had no idea how dangerous that might be. And now I see Jed, our five-year-old, he's, he climbs this little tree in our front yard, and he's maybe four feet off the ground. And I'm like, three points of contact at all time, remember, and um, make sure you're grabbing on tight, and you need to be wearing shoes, and maybe you should just get down, because this is incredibly dangerous. And so as a kid, I was way up in these trees with Jet. Now as a father, I'm watching my son, and I'm freaking out, and I just had no idea the danger that I was in probably when I was a kid. The things that I thought were dangerous or the things that I thought were not dangerous were really dangerous to me. And I think that's still true of me today. The things that God sees as dangerous don't always look dangerous to me. And the things that God sees as wrong don't always seem wrong to me. And evil doesn't always feel as evil as it really is when I'm doing it. And oftentimes, that is because I'm suppressing truth. I'm suppressing the truth of God. And it's easy for us to suppress the truth so that it's kind of a natural thing that we do so that we don't feel the weight of our sin. But the reality is, is that we can rewrite our history to make ourselves look better than we are. And we can convince ourselves that what was sin wasn't actually sin at all. And the, the truth is that sometimes we suppress is that the sin in our life is a much bigger deal than we think it is. The drifting in our life is a much bigger deal than we think it is. The smallest little sin, the smallest little drift, the wages of that, the consequences of that is death. When we suppress that truth, the payment of our sin when we suppress this truth that the the payment for our sin is death, the payment is what Jesus did on the cross, we belittle what Jesus did on the cross when we suppress that truth. So that's number one. Are you suppressing truth? And there's way more that we could go into with that. But just ask yourself that question today. Are there places I'm suppressing truth in my life? Uh, The next one, are you ignoring God? Verse 21 says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And then later it says, and instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And a lot of times we 
ignore God on purpose because maybe we're mad at him or he is not coming through on a promise or we're choosing sin over him intentionally. And we could go down that road of um, ignoring God on purpose. But I think a lot of times we don't ignore him on purpose. We just get caught up in the things of life and they become more important. So we ignore God for those things because who has time for God when there's a business to run? Or who has time for God when there's uh, vacation pictures to post? Or football to watch? Or kids to feed? Or politicians to criticize? Or anywhere you look, our attention is constantly being distracted from God by the things of this world. I remember the first time I flew on an airplane, I was 20 years old. You might be thinking, wow, you didn't fly on an airplane until you were 20? No, I didn't. Um, when I was a kid, we would drive everywhere. We would go to um, the Ozarks, which is like probably six hours away, and we would drive there, which is fine. That's a good place to drive. But then we'd go to Arizona, and we would drive there, too, and be like, we'll be there in nine days. Buckle up. <laughs> um, we never went to Europe, but I think we probably would have driven there, too. <laughs> so the first time I'm flying, I have a window seat. And for all three hours of this flight, my eyes are looking out the window, and I am blown away by what I'm seeing. Just 30,000 or whatever feet above the ground, looking at fields, seeing things from a totally different perspective than I have my entire life. And it's beautiful, and I'm looking out the window, and I see all these amazing things. And I remember the first time I flew into Denver, I see, I'm seeing the mountains as we go through them. And it just happened to be like right as the sun is setting kind of. And I'm blown away by God's creation and the sun setting over these mountains. And it's just unbelievable. And I just am captivated looking out the window. But now you fast forward 15 years and I've flown into Denver tons of times. I fly into Denver all the time for work. And I fly over those same mountains. And my window shade is shut. And I'm on my phone playing Mad Skills BMX or something. And I'm missing out on the beauty of God's creation because I'm focusing on something created. I'm focusing on something lesser than God. And I do that all the time where I, I ignore God because my focus is on something lesser than him. And that's because this world and everything in it is not working the way that God intended Paul Tripp, who I really like, he's a good author, he always says, we're looking for something horizontally that can only be found vertically. And I love that. Um, and these horizontal things, the things of this world, are always working to get a, our attention. Think about your phone or your lock screen. They are the things that are blowing up your lock screen. They are the things that we can see and we can feel every day. And God isn't always like that. Um, especially if we're not looking for him, we can. He, he is like that. We can see him and we can feel him. And Taylor, you have been talking about that this, this morning already, seeing and feeling and tasting that the Lord is good. But we need to be looking for him and recognizing when he's trying to get our attention. And so, are you ignoring God? That's the second one. That maybe, if that's the case, we're drifting. Are you suppressing truth? The next one, are you exchanging the truth of God for lies? Verse 25, they traded the truth about God 
or a lie. Something strange has kind of happened to me in the last six months, and I don't know where it came from. It's a little vulnerable to share, but um, I've realized through different conversations, different questions that I've been asked, even working, I work with youth often, I realized that I really don't have a ton of memories from the time I was 12 till 17 or something like that. And that itself is maybe a little strange, like I have glimpses of memories of that time, but even those memories that I have, I don't trust them. I don't know that they're true. I think in some way I have lied to myself about some of those memories to protect myself or to protect people that I love or, or something. I'm not sure what it is, and I'm just now kind of realizing that's the case, and I'm beginning to um, explore that with God and with other people. Um, but the timelines and the things of my memory don't really make sense. They don't line up sometimes. And I think that I've traded some of my true memories for lies, and I don't know why that is, but I do it with God too. I take truth and I exchange it for a lie. I take the truth of scripture and I exchange it for a lie that I believe for some reason. And maybe we take something that we wish wasn't true about the Bible, something that isn't as easy for us to believe, and we lie to ourselves and we say, that was way back then, or that's Old Testament, or something like that. And that part of the Bible isn't relevant anymore. Or we take a really good, really true promise of God, and we lie to ourselves about that. I'm too big of a mess for Jesus. His grace is not sufficient for me. And all of our good works, all of our canned food bringing and baby boy clothes bringing, all of that is not enough. All we can possibly say is that I'm a sinner. God, show me your grace and your mercy. And praise Jesus, because on my worst, most horrible, most drifting day, I am still not too far from Jesus. I can run to the presence of Jesus, and he will receive me with open arms. And my acceptance into his kingdom isn't based on my performance. It's not based on how many baby boy clothes we brought. It's not because I've kept all the rules, but it's because Jesus kept all the rules. And then he died on the cross, so that when I put my trust in him... I will never, ever, ever have to receive the penalty for my drifting because he received it for me. And that is the truth of Jesus. That is the truth that if I exchange that for a lie, that's when I know I'm drifting. That's when I know I'm in trouble. And that's a simple truth to understand. Him for me. It's as simple as that. And yet, I exchange that for a lie often. Uh, So are you exchanging the truth of God for a lie? Two more. One, are you facing the consequences of your sin? It says, God abandoned them to their shameful desires. He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. And when I first read that, I'm pretty confused because I'm like, God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He would never abandon us. And yet it says he abandoned them to their shameful desires. Then I realized, you know, there comes a point 
when over and over and over and over and over we sin and we rebel and we turn our backs on God, that God, out of his love and out of his mercy, gives us over to the consequences of our rebellion. He allows us to experience the consequences of our sin because even though sin leads to consequences, consequences can oftentimes lead us back to God. Jesus tells a story about the prodigal son. This son asks for, her, asks for his inheritance from his father early, which is essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have my money. And his father gives it to him. And so the son goes out and he spends all his money on wild living and drinking and women. And he eventually gets to a point where he spent all his money and he has nowhere else to turn. And he's hungry and he's alone and he's in this pathetic, miserable state. And he's so miserable that he would do anything to even eat what the pigs are eating. And for him, what starts out as freedom ends up in misery. He hits a wall where he has just gone too far. And God lets him experience the consequences of his sin. Now, I don't know this, but I would imagine that there was a drift in the son's heart. I would imagine that it wasn't just one day. He said, that's it. I'm, I'm, I love my dad, and he is here for me, and I'm all in. And then the next day he says, dad, give me my inheritance. I would imagine there was a drift in his heart. There was a bitterness that kind of bubbled up, and there was a pride in him that said, I deserve that inheritance. And there was a jealousy, maybe. And so finally, that drift hits him, and he says, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm going to take my inheritance, and I'm going to leave my family altogether. And God let this son experience the consequences of that drift. And because of his love and because of his mercy for this particular son, he knew that those consequences would ultimately send the son back to their father. And it does. And the son, as he is walking down the street to his father's house, beaten and hungry and ready to beg for his father's forgiveness, the father runs out to him and he wraps his arms around him and he celebrates his son's return. And right now, maybe you're experiencing the consequences of your drifting. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Maybe your job is on the line. Maybe you put yourself and your family in financial hardship. Maybe there's a long, long list of consequences of sin. And maybe there's an instance in your life that you can think, man, that is a consequence of my own sin. And if you're feeling consequences of your sin right now, Instead of getting angry at God that you're experiencing them, praise Jesus that you are experiencing consequences. Because that is Jesus in his love and in his mercy calling you back to him. And maybe you've put yourself in that place and he is calling you home. He's calling you ready to be that father that greets you with open arms and a hug. If you have not experienced the consequences of your sin, don't wait until you do to turn to Jesus because at some point you'll likely feel those consequences and it will not be fun. The consequences of sin are not fun. Ultimately, the consequences of sin is death. And even it's, we see some of these big name pastors, famous pastors who we admire and revere, 
who have had moral public failures, and we say, that would never be me. I would never do that. But the reality is, is they are just like us. And these people who we see mess up publicly have been struggling privately for years. And right now, maybe you're struggling privately, and your private struggle is not too far from being a public moral failure. And so my advice to myself and to others is to run to Jesus right now and thank him for his grace and his mercy and for the consequences of sin. Last but not least, are you calling evil things good? The last verse there says, they still go headlong into darkness, encouraging others to do the same and applauding them when they do. They still go headlong into darkness, encouraging others to do the same and applauding them when they do. Are you calling evil things good? This is when we have drifted so far away from God that we don't even care anymore. We know what we're doing is evil and we still do it. And it's not just that, but we bring others into it with us. We bring others down with us. And when they do something evil, we applaud them. We say, nice job. And in a lot of ways, I think this is sadly where we're at right now in our world, in our society. There's evil everywhere. We disobey God. We deny God. We do things against God's will. And we say it's a good thing. And we say we're making progress. And we say we're moving in the right right direction. Or we call it freedom. But it will only lead to misery. It's not freedom. It's captivity to sin. You know, in my mind, there are two places where you find evil. There's evil on the outside of us, the evil of this world, which we all know exists, but there's also evil inside of us. And when those two things team up, it forms a pretty terrible relationship. If it were just the evil on the outside of us, it wouldn't be that bad. But since our biggest danger to us is our own heart, our own heart magnetizes us to the evil outside of us and we begin to take place in it we or we begin to take part in it we drift toward it and we drift and we drift and we drift and then we jump all the way in and that is just where we're at we're at we're there as a society but we're there as individuals as well and you can deny it all you want but we're all the same we're all in a sinking ship of sin here's the good news God does his best work through people who drift. Phil, like like I said, the kings, first four kings, they drifted. Peter drifted. Paul drifted. David drifted. Every person you read about in the Bible outside of Jesus drifted. Chris drifts. Heather drifts. I have the occasional drifty moment. But as far as we drift away, Jesus is right there as close as he ever has been. And to us, it may seem like we're miles and miles and miles away and we've been drifting for years, but he is right next to us, just waiting for us to call out to him. In Luke 15, same chapter where Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, he tells that story in response to the Pharisees calling him out for eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are saying, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. 
They're saying they're drifters, Jesus. You can't eat with them. You can't receive them into your, into your life. And so they're calling him out for that. And Jesus responds with these three stories. He tells the story of a lost sheep. He, still, he tells the story of a lost coin. And then he tells the story of the lost son. And as they say, Jesus, you receive sinners and eat with them. He says, no, no, no. I don't receive sinners and eat with them. Through these three stories, he says, I go out looking for them. I'm hunting them down. I am going to the ends of the earth to find them. I'm looking high and low. I am giving my life for them. I'm doing everything I possibly can to get them so that I can eat with them and them with me. And I don't care how far they've drifted, I am right next to them, eagerly awaiting for them to come to me. Because you could have been drifting from Jesus for years and years and years, but it takes one word to come back to him. Our sin has left us separated from God, but it's not just that. It has also left us damaged. And because we're damaged, we drift. And so, yes, Jesus meets our need for a Savior, but he also loves us so much that even after we're restored to him, he still commits himself to us in sometimes a very, very, very long process of heart and life transformation because he wants us to look like him. In every aspect of our lives, he wants us to look like him in the way we act, in the way we live, in the way we love. And that's why as he's having his last supper in a room full of drifters, his friends, his best friends, but he knows they're drifters. He knows they're about to betray him. He knows they're about to deny him. He knows they're drifting. His last words before that last supper, the communion, he says, I have set an example. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So we're going to take communion. There are... um, baskets of communion. Go ahead and start passing those back. And as they're being passed back, I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to answer these questions in your heart. Are there places in your life where you are suppressing truth? Are there places in your life where you're suppressing truth? Are you ignoring God? Are there places in your life where you're ignoring God? Are you ignoring the Holy Spirit? Are you exchanging the truth of God for lies? Are you experiencing the consequences of your sin? Where in your life are you experiencing the consequences of your sin? And are there places in your life where you are calling evil things good? So think through those questions. Think about those. Are you suppressing truth? Are you ignoring God? Are you exchanging the truth of God for lies? Are you experiencing consequences of your sin? And are you calling evil things good? Because after Jesus said, I have set an example for you that you should do just as I have done for you. He said that during dinner and they just kept eating. 
But then the Bible says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And don't, we're going to take communion as the last song plays, so you don't need to do it yet. But Jesus said, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So as this last song plays, I want you to take communion. And as you take it, I want you to remember what Jesus says. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. This is my body broken for the forgiveness of your sin. This is my blood for the forgiveness of your drifting, for the forgiveness of your wickedness, your wickedness, your sin, your greed, your hate, your envy, your murder. My body broken for your quarreling. My blood spilled for your deception, your malicious behavior, your gossip. This is my body broken for the backstabbers. My blood spilled for the haters of God, for the insolent, the proud, the boastful. My body broken for those who invent new ways of sinning. My blood spilled for those who disobey their parents. For those who refuse to understand. My body broken for those who break their promises. My blood for the heartless those who have no mercy my body and my blood for the forgiveness of the ones who knew they were doing wrong but they did it anyway and they even brought others into it this is my body broken for you this is my blood spilled for you